This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Kyle. I'm feeling pressure. Are you? These are our teams, by the way. Historically, we haven't had the teams in the room, but we thought since we're celebrating them, that we would invite them at least for the first part. And then as we kick it off, we sequester them and make them stay in a secluded waiting room. But hopefully you won't be too nervous. So this is always uh, a bit bittersweet because um, I'm uh, excited as heck for you to see what they've done. But um, I'd be lying to say I wasn't a little sad because I won't see this group as frequently as I have over the last few months. So it's been awesome working with all of you. Um, we've got six teams presenting tonight. Interview. <laughs> Guinea Gig. <laughs> Selva. <laughs> Authenticate. <laughs> Microprint. <laughs> and the Herd Co. <laughs> and. I asked them to be a little vocal so we could get a little energy in the room and a little anxiety out, and they are following great instruction. Um, as Kyle mentioned, uh, this is a long process for the teams. The, the journey begins in the fall quarter. They start to attend a bunch of mixers that we put together to find teams, meet other students, find teams, network with mentors to brainstorm their ideas. And the fall is also when we hold our annual elevator pitch social. This year we had 43 ideas pitched by UCSB students and 40 or so mentors that came out to introduce themselves and lend a hand. So that was a very successful event. The work continues in the winter quarter and uh, they either enroll and take uh, classes or they attend workshops uh, with the idea being to help them develop a business model around their idea and validate it in the marketplace. Some of the teams you'll see tonight will have done over 100 customer interviews in that period of time to fine-tune their product market fit and the features of their product. And um, also, I should add that in, in the winter is when the teams learn the art and the pain of the pivot. And pivot they did, but that's how they end up where they are today. And then, of course, uh, things wrap up here in the spring quarter, and the focus shifts to how they tell the story of their business. We had 20 teams present at the New Venture Fair about four weeks ago, at which six finalists were selected by our community judges, and those are here today. So some quick facts about our cohort, um, our finals cohort. Um, they, they range in age from 20 to 30. I bet you can guess which one finished their PhD during the program or is about to finish. 63% uh, are undergraduate. About two-thirds come from a STEM background, uh, which is a little unusual for us. Usually the mix is about 50-50. And we're proud to say that this year, 41% of our finals cohort are women. That was a very high-pitched yell. And so... Um, Actually, we, um, we're having problems with this clicker. There we go. Okay, so uh, participation uh, was up across the board for women in the program at all stages. And so we're working on this, and we're trying to achieve a gender balance 
that a little, that's a little more consistent with the overall UCSB student population, which is somewhere around 50-50. And so the work this year included a, an event that we put on in the fall quarter in October, uh, which was focused on UCSB women students that have an interest in entrepreneurship and business. Uh, we have a lot more work to do in this area to sustain these numbers, but we're really thrilled to see it move in the right direction. Um, it takes a lot of effort, people, time, uh, to put these events and this program together, and I just want to offer a few thank yous. First, I want to say thank you to my TMP teammates, staff, and faculty for all of the support you offer all year long. Thank you very much. <laughs> Special call out to Sarah Hilliard, who... Anybody who knows the inside of this program knows that Sarah keeps it going on a day-to-day -day basis, and I appreciate you a lot, and I know they do too. I would also like to thank our mentors. So um, our mentors wear a lot of hats. They are instructors. They are workshop leaders. They are career counselors. They are skill developers, they're psychologists for the students and me, and quite honestly, they're the backbone of this program. And uh, as much as I hate this when I'm on the other side of the podium, um, could I ask those of you that have, have done any mentoring this year or met with a team or come to an event, just to stand briefly so people get an understanding of how much community support we get? Some of you are being shy, but I understand that's okay. So, um, moving forward here, uh, I also want to thank our sponsors. Uh, without you, it's hard, to, it's hard to run this program. And what's really great is that so many of you now are involved beyond your financial support as mentors or who offer in-kind services to the teams. And we greatly appreciate your support. Um, most of you know that our programs are almost fully self-funded, so without the help from the, uh, the community, uh, we can't do the work we do and impact the number of students. So thank you, sponsors, for uh, sharing the mission with us. I also want to thank our donors. This year, we uh, were the, the recipients of a very generous matching gift from Chuck and Missy Sheldon. And that provided a wonderful incentive for others to get involved. And um, I've listed the names up here, and we're very grateful for your support. Um, Chuck and Missy, thank you, and thank you to the rest of you that have contributed. And lastly, I would like to thank our judges for taking time out of their busy schedules. And there's a more complete bio in your programs, but I'd like to just say a word or two about each of them, starting with Valerie. Valerie is a marketing and branding, dare I say expert, Valerie, is that okay? Extraordinaire, really good at it. She founded and runs Valerie Bishop Group, which utilizes the art and science of marketing to help clients launch ignite and scale their businesses. 
Earlier in her career, she directed the marketing efforts of a $1 billion vision of a Fortune 5 company throughout U.S., Canada, and Asia Pacific. And if you don't know Valerie, I urge you to find an excuse to meet her. I can guarantee you an insightful conversation. And she is absolutely amazing with our students. Valerie, thanks for being here. Kevin O'Connor is a longtime tech entrepreneur and investor. He founded the internet advertising company DoubleClick in 1995, which was later acquired by Google for $3.1 billion. He then came to Santa Barbara and founded Graphic in 2009, which was recently acquired by Amazon. Kevin now runs SCOP Venture Capital, which invests in Southern California-based SaaS companies. And with his spare time, we're hoping he spends more and more time with us. So, Kevin, you're welcome anytime. Mike Pugh is a technology executive with a long resume of M&A transactions. He currently runs lifestyle marketing at Ring Central, and his spare time is a member of the Santa Barbara Angel Alliance. Previously, he was part of the founding team at EFAX and later served as GM and head of marketing at its acquirer, J2 Global. So Mike was one of the very first people I met five years ago when I took this position. So I'm glad this has gone full circle, Mike. It's great. Good to have you back. And Steve Tablack is a medtech executive who most recently was chairman and CEO of a company called Genweave Biosciences and was the founder and former CEO of Tamtron, a cancer diagnostics company. So Steve and I figured out recently that we likely crossed paths as uh, business economics students, what, about 10, 11 years ago? <laughs> I'm glad you got the joke. Um, Steve's based in the, in the Silicon Valley, but he's constantly looking for excuses to come to Santa Barbara. We got one for you. Love to have you involved. It's been really great, so thank you. Introducing the judges is always an exercise in humility for me. So, Okay, our format tonight, we'll do team pitches. Uh, they'll be eight minutes long, followed by eight minutes of Q&A from the judges. After three, we'll take a short break, ten minutes max, just so you can stretch your legs and use the restroom. We'll do three more. And I'm having a lot of problems with this clicker. After the pitches, we'll be posting a slide with text numbers for people's choice voting. So um, you'll, it'll be open for about 10 minutes. Make sure that you vote. Um, during that time, at the times that, that the, uh, the judges deliberate, we invite you all to enjoy a reception out on the patio. And after that, and I don't know what happened with that award presentation, but I've got another picture of you, Valerie, and I'm not sure how. <laughs> there will be an award presentation and apparently, Valerie will be running it. <laughs> this is where we learn to roll with the flow. That's it. Okay. And what's at stake? $40,000 in seed prize money and bragging rights. The judges will, will decide on the categories that are listed here. So, that concludes my comments. The Herd Co., are you ready to go? Yeah. All right. Thank you all. And we make fabric from cannabis waste. Now, our fabric is soft and drapey and cost competitive with market alternatives, but most importantly, it allows apparel brands to tell a compelling sustainability story, waste to wear. 
When we reach for our favorite t-shirt, we don't often think about what it took to get that shirt into our closet, and much less what it's even made of, really. It takes a lot of raw materials to make fabric, and unfortunately, within the next 20 to 30 years, the apparel industry is going to need three times as many raw materials to meet demand. That's not good. That's also not possible. We simply don't have the land and water and resources to keep up. So instead of making fabric out of raw materials, we make fabric from agricultural waste, beginning with cannabis. Now, when I talk about cannabis, I'm referring to both hemp and marijuana. These plants are harvested for their seed and their flowers, and the rest of the plant, the stalk and the leaves, are sent to oil extractors. Once all of the good, valuable stuff is removed from the plants, about 90% of the biomass is left over, and that is sent to landfill, or it's burned, at a rate of about a million pounds per week here in California. There is a lot of this material. And if you look at the material, right there, this is actually a picture of a hemp stalk. You can see there's two different kinds of fibers going on. There's this fiber outer shell here, this fibrous outer shell. That's called the bast fiber, and that is what traditional hemp fabric is made out of. But what we're interested in is actually this inner woody core, which is pretty universally considered trash. This is called the herd, and this is where we get our name. The herd co collects this material. We use a low impact pulping process to convert this material into a viable apparel grade pulp, and we sell it into the apparel supply chain. Now, this model has two major benefits. This is a regulated industry, obviously, so managing waste is a huge burden for oil extractors. They're legally required to have a waste management plan. So what that means is they're required to pay somebody to pick up and appropriately manage their waste. That means the Herd Co. is able to generate revenue from collecting this raw material, in addition to generate revenue from pulp sales. Additionally, collecting from oil extractors is the equivalent of collecting from between 20 to 30 farmers. So we have a streamlined and efficient transportation system that helps us be an efficient company. But our pulping process is really where the magic happens. We use a low-impact pulping process that's just water, heat, and pressure, very few chemicals, to convert this waste into viable apparel pulp. This is a patented process. We are working with our partner to, to negotiate an exclusivity license, which would mean that the Herd Co. is the only company that is able to viably produce apparel pulp from this waste stream. We sell this pulp into the apparel supply chain as viscose, or cannabis-based viscose. Now, how on earth do you make clothes out of pulp? Well, there are three main kinds of fabric that we're used to seeing on a daily basis, right? There's natural fiber, like cotton or traditional hemp, and polyester, which is, of course, made from plastic. But what we are producing is a man-made cellulosic, and this is actually the fastest-growing segment within the fabric supply chain. MMCs are fabrics made from wood pulp. Basically, they're fabrics made from trees. And if you're wearing an MMC fabric today, you'll see one of these names on the right here on your care tag. So check that out after the presentation. MMCs, 91% of them on the market today are made from trees that have been unsustainably harvested. So that means that many of these trees are taken from tropical rainforests, which isn't great. So instead, we make these from ag waste. This is a huge industry already. It's $25 billion today, and it's doubled its market share in the past 10 years. But even more exciting, it's projected to double again in the next five. 
Most specifically, the Herdco is focused on Lyocell, a $1.5 billion segment, because this is the most sustainable option, and that is what brands want. We spoke to over 100 people at 50 different brands. You can see some of the brands we spoke with down here. And we heard repeatedly that the circular economy narrative is extremely popular. Brands are able to make more money selling sustainable clothes, and they want to feed into that narrative. They're very excited about a waste-to-wear story for their customers. We heard repeatedly that brands are hungry for this sort of material, and ultimately, viscose is not the best use of trees. So if they don't want fabric made from trees, what do they want it made out of? We spoke with we did a survey of over 138 different brands and heard that over 60% are most excited about a fabric from ag waste, which is what we do. Beyond that, working with brands, the Herd Co. fits seamlessly into their supply chain. No pun intended. We work directly with the brands, and they are able to nominate our pulp at the beginning of their supply chain. What this means is that their relationships stay the same. Their supply chain stays essentially the same. They use the same fabric producers, they use the same extruders, and simply nominate our pulp at the beginning. Market pulp makes about 26% margins today. The reason the Herd Co. is so exciting is because we're able to generate revenue from this waste collection at the beginning of our supply. What that means is that we are seeing 62% gross margins per pound of pulp. We gather this waste, we pulp it, we generate revenue selling it to these customers. And in our first year of production, we'll be partnering with one brand producing a pilot line. By year two, once we're able to collect more waste, we will break even with only three customers. And we have existing strong relationships with five customers already that have expressed interest in our product. We attended two of these conferences last year. These are the three premier textile trade shows in the world, and we will be attending these trade shows again this fall as an exhibitor to try to gain additional traction within the industry. In our first year and a half, we need $450,000. That would allow us to secure all necessary licenses, produce a pilot line, and account for all operating expenses. This is a big opportunity. Alternative MMC pulp is a really exciting part of the industry today. So, of course, there are other players in the field. Ultimately, the Herd Co. is the only company that allows brands to tell a waste-to-wear story and a minimal processing story while being cost-competitive. Our pulp is sold at the same price as existing market pulp, and we could even sell it for less because of our margins. So brands are very excited. This is us. We met at the Bren School here at UCSB as master's students. We come from three different backgrounds. I worked in a materials department at an apparel brand. We have experience working in venture capital, specifically with sustainable textiles, and experience scaling a startup here in Santa Barbara. And we have a customer. We will be producing a pilot line with Toad Co. So that means in the next Year, next June, there will be 5,000 shirts on the shelves. So hopefully, next year, when you reach for your favorite shirt, you can tell the story, Waste to Wear. Thank you so much. Very nice presentation. We'd like to lead us off with Q&A. So thank you for the presentation. Um, since you're in a position to displace 
players that are already in an existing ecosystem of, of uh, creating the pulp, creating materials, creating products. Um, what would make someone want to work with you versus assuming that one of the other uh, MMC, do I have it right? MMC pulp manufacturers just doesn't decide to do this because they've already got equipment, they've got customers, they've got vendors. Why you and not them? To answer your question, um, we are different in a couple different ways. One, brands are able to tell a stronger sustainability story, and that's really what brands are looking for today. They want to be able to sell their products for a slight markup. We've seen that sustainable apparel sells for about 10 to 20% more than traditional apparel. So brands are really looking for sustainable alternatives. But in terms of existing pulpers moving into this space, our feedstock is not possible with traditional pulping. That's part of the reason our pulping process is so exciting, because it's the first technology that makes this possible. So if we put our material into a traditional pulping machine, it wouldn't produce a viable apparel pulp because the fiber lengths are too short. So our technology allows us to produce viable yarn. Thank you. Steve? Um, What is the sort of, like if I want to understand the graphic, you're saying five tons and 5,000 shirts, is that the relative conversion rate of waste to fabric? It's 10 tons to 5,000 shirts. 10 tons to 5,000 shirts. Yes. And so from an average oil waste CBD plant, how much tonnage would they produce in a year? They produce, in a year, they produce about a ton a week. Um, per per, per plant. Tons a year. Per yeah. CBD plant. Per oil extraction facility, yes. Okay. Go ahead, Valerie. So you talked a little bit about um, the textile manufacturers and your pulping uh, technology is very unique. Mm -hmm. When the pulp arrives at the textile manufacturers, do they have a different process that they have to use to turn it into fabric or is it the same process as long as they have the raw pulp in the right uh, quantities and the right consistency? They don't have to change anything. So our technology takes it to a viable apparel pulp that they can just plug and play into what they already do. Okay, great. So just an add-on question to that. So obviously there's a lot of chemicals involved in turning pulp into fabric, Mm -hmm. not necessarily to create pulp, Mm because you already have a sustainable model for that. So what are you, how are you going to basically spin that story with regards to the chemicals that are used to turn the pulp into fabric? I'm so glad you asked that question because we don't have time to go into it in an eight-minute presentation, but it's very important. So there are three main ways that pulp is turned into fabric as an MMC, right? There's the viscose rayon, which is the most popular, it's the most common. Then there's modal and lyocell. And the biggest difference between these three is that process. So the traditional viscose process or rayon process is, is extremely caustic. It does require a lot of chemicals and is very dirty and dangerous. What makes Lyocell so appealing to us as a company and why we're focused there is because that is a closed loop process. So that process, they're able to recapture 98% of the solvents at the end of life, at the end of the process. And that's essentially why we're focused there. It was a really good presentation. I knew nothing about the, this industry, which is hard to believe. The, um, how much waste today is available? You said a million pounds a week is available in California. So how much waste is available countrywide? 
Well, so from oil extractors, there's currently 81 facilities in California. That's growing very, very fast. There's more facilities being built all the time because it's a very uh, exciting industry. Um, and each facility produces a ton a week. So, so, so it's 81 tons a week, which, come, tons. which comes out to how many? It's about 1,400 tons per year. Um, okay. Just from uh, just from the oil extractors. And so, let's say you had 100% market share. What what would be the revenue from that? If you if you owned all the uh, the waste, all of the cannabis oil extraction, yeah, uh, the those waste streams, yep, uh, it'd be about 14 million. Okay, just from right. California. So we we wouldn't we wouldn't capture the market, so we're planning to move into the hemp uh, the hemp farms, uh, as well as moving into Washington and Colorado and those markets, uh, as well as Canada, um, and also moving into other agricultural waste streams. Uh, and years. have you actually produced a shirt or any kind of fabric? We're from a couple it? weeks away from it. Yes, it would have been so nice to be able to. I know to, to be able feel to touch it. it. It would have been the coup. <laughs> We're out of time. Great job, the herd company. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, hi everyone. Thank you for being here tonight. My name is Cole Parker, and our company is Guinea Gig. We connect university research groups to research participants. Every year in the United States, millions of dollars are paid out to individuals willing to participate in research. The problem is recruiting them. Labs, they waste so much time relying on flyers, clunky software, and word of mouth to try and find quality participants. It's archaic, and it's just ineffective. As college students, we don't know where to sign up, where to participate, and we miss out on valuable opportunities as a result. There's a clear problem in these groups' ability to connect, but we have the solution. The Guinea Gig platform is an easy-to-use app interface that makes the entire recruitment process simple. For labs, our primary goal is to save them time. In doing this, we will not only recruit, but also handle payment processing, lab-specific surveys, tax forms, and we'll even have an optional rating system to ensure quality in participants. These uh, features will save researchers countless hours, allowing them to focus on what's important, the research. For participants, us, the college students, well, we're always looking for a way to supplement our income. This platform makes it easy to earn low time commitment income while advancing cutting edge research all on one central platform. Now let me take you through how it works. First, I'll take you through the researcher experience. As a researcher, once my lab was approved, I could upload my study, along with any other qualifying information an individual would need to participate. Once the study was uploaded, participants would begin to register, and I would simply hit Approve to accept them onto our platform. Once the approved status was submitted, the participants would come in, do my research, and get paid. And to complete that, we'd hit the complete status to ensure that they were ready. Now I'm going to take you through the participant platform. It is just as easy. As a participant, I would start by filling out my registration form along with my personal information form so labs knew who I was. Once that was set up, I could begin browsing available studies. I could begin browsing available studies. When I found a study I liked and qualified for, well, I could sign up, go in, participate, and get paid all through the Guinea Gig platform. We make it that easy. From HIPAA and IRB compliance to 
Payment processing and quality assurance, we have done our homework when it comes to security. We've interviewed a number of faculty members here at UCSB, including the chair of the IRB board, to ensure we are both legally and ethically compliant with all the standards of research. Now let me take you through our market opportunity a little bit. To size our market, we looked at high research institutions, Stanford and UCSB. Now, gathering this information was kind of tough because professors, they typically get their grants independently, and the data is not stored in a central manner in a university setting. So what this basically meant is we had to talk to a lot of people before we were finally able to reach the higher-ups who were able and willing to gather this information for us. And once these higher-ups did, even they were surprised at how much was paid out every year to participants. At Stanford, in their business school alone, over a million dollars was paid out last year to research participants. At UCSB, in just our psych and econ department, $400,000 plus were paid out to participants in 2018. Now, there are 2,000 higher education institutions across the country, making our total serviceable market over $500 million. However, we're going to focus in and look at the 412 high research institutions across the country. Assuming equivalent payouts, this makes our target market over $167 million per year. Now the fun question, I'm sure you've all been waiting for a new address. How do we make our money? Well, we take a 10% fee on payouts to participant following the completion of a study. So essentially this is how it will work. Labs will pay us a lump sum of money up front based on the number of participants they need for a given study. Once the participants go in and finish their research, we would pay them from that lump sum, taking a 10% fee on each payout to participants per study. This recurring revenue model allows us to expand quickly as we grow regionally and add users. Marketing is essential to us growing our business. Two strong ways we intend to promote our platform are through dual posting and viral loop. Dual posting involves posting a platform or service on a different platform. So for instance, if I was scrolling through Craigslist and saw an opportunity to do some cool research and earn some quick income, well, I'd click a link, and that link would take us directly to the guinea gig platform. Now we got a new user. Viral loop involves incentivizing existing users to share our platform. This could be through cash rewards, better opportunities, or premium features. These tactics, along with trade shows, personal relationships, and guerrilla marketing will be essential for us growing our platform during launch. As you can see by the graphic, there are other players in this space, but their solutions only address part of the problem. Our solution addresses critical need that we have identified for both researchers and participants all in one central platform. As we expand to meet market need, we will have an opportunity to brand ourselves as the user-friendly solution to research recruitment. The competition typically takes a set fee from universities. We don't do that. We're in addition to the gig economy, using a recurring revenue model to earn income while making sure that we provide a valuable solution to connect these two groups. And we are the team to get this done. We are a diverse group of individuals, all intensely passionate about solving this problem and finding these. We have the skill sets, the network, and the focus to bring this product to market and address an immediate need. We have interviewed professors across multiple universities, 
and polled over 200 college students during our market validation process. Across the board, the results were always the same. Students want a simpler way to find and participate in these studies, and researchers want an easier way to recruit quality participants. We have verbal commitments from a number of professors and a network of students ready to take advantage of this solution. We have the connections and we have the network to bring this product to market and thus intend to roll out our soft launch at UCSB this coming fall. To do this, we will need some capital. We estimate that we'll need $200,000 to complete the marketing and platform that I've outlined in today's presentation. This will allow us to effectively bring a strong product to the people who need it most. Our addition to the gig economy has the potential to expand to markets even beyond a university setting. From market research to focus groups, there are billion dollar industries that need a better way to recruit participants. We could be their solution as well. As a team, we all firmly believe that no research should ever stall because of issues in recruitment. It's time for professors to have the solution they deserve and for students to have a simple way to earn low time commitment income. Guinea gig is the solution that will make this possible. Thank you, and I'd be happy to accept any questions you may have. We turn on here, thank you. Steve, you wanna start us off? Um, yeah, what do you think the average commission would be for a single participant in dollars? Is it um, roughly twenty dollars is the average payout to a participant, and so we'd be getting about ten percent of that, which is two dollars. And have, uh, you're using an independent payment processing platform? Yes, right? we're using PayRails, which is a third-party API. Uh, okay. For integrating. And do you know roughly what they would charge for processing payment? Um, they charge a subscription fee, so it's anywhere from two hundred to eight hundred dollars per month. Per month. Okay. Great. Thanks. So you obviously have two target markets. You have the um, participants, and then you have actually the researchers and the people who need the participants. I see a pretty strong strategy with regards to getting the participants, but obviously if they go to your platform and they don't see any research happening in their geographical area, um, you know, you're gonna, they're going to drop off fairly quickly. So what is the sales strategy to get researchers and professors specifically? Um, we've outlined a five-year timeline uh, based on our university expansion. And it basically involves um, starting at UCSB, which is our year zero, which is our soft launch, and then going to the U using those connections to expand to the UC system, and then uh, to California, and then to the Northeast. But um, we're planning on gathering data uh, in our first year, our year zero at UCSB, to then bring to these next groups so that we can say, hey, our platform worked this much better, it's this much more efficient. Okay, I, um, so that's great. And what is the sales strategy? Are you having phone calls? Are you emails? Are you buying lists? What actually, how are you actually gonna reach out to these people and find who they are? Yes, yeah, so it depends on our, our timeline. Um, beginning in the timeline, we plan to be really, um, have personal connections with these people. Um, we really wanna go ask them what they specifically need and work with them hand in hand. So our year zero, that might um, start with uh, researchers saying, I need 50 participants here. Um, can you guys go get them for me? And we'll, we'll go get them like that. 
as we grow we, um, and we have more resources, we think our sales team and marketing team um, will be digitally advertising, but also in person making connections because we know the research industry is uh, very based on connections. Thank you. I pay for most of my beer in spring breaks being a guinea pig for uh, medical experiments in college. So uh, I, I love, I think that's a pretty small initial market. Um, I'm curious, I, I like your other recruiting markets uh, much better. I mean, I think there's a, a, a big need. I don't, I don't know if there's competitors in those spaces or not, but definitely a big problem. What do you get, uh, you're competing against, a, what, Craigslist now? Is that what people are using? Yeah, and posters, word of mouth. There's so no centralized what, manner to really get these studies out. There's what? There's no central uh, platform to really get these studies out so at the moment. There's you don't have an idea what they, they allocate for recruiting now, how much they think they're going to spend in recruiting their subjects. Like, like do they think about it? Like today, when a professor or you know, researcher wants to do a study, uh, do they allocate a budget for recruiting or well, just time? Their biggest, um, it's, it's mostly time right now. Uh, the biggest way they get, the professors get their uh, students, right, or people right now are from students. Uh, if, you take, if you're a psychology student around here, you probably have done one of the, the studies and they, they do for credit. So they're spending a lot of time mostly. Money, they, they don't have a way really to have people go out and recruit. I know there's research groups too that recruit, but they charge a very expensive uh, fees and it's kind of a different avenue from that. So um, right now it's mainly a time problem for them. Um, to piggyback off Valerie's question, um, doing a marketplace is tough because you've got to serve two different sides. Um, which of the two sides do you think will be your biggest hurdle and why? Um, I would say I think our biggest struggle will be uh, with the students. We believe fully that the platform that we're installing for professors, once it gains traction here at UCSD, will be incredibly successful because it's what we built around the professor's specifications and what they've really asked for. Students here, we believe that we'll be able to gain traction with, but once we expand to different universities, that will be a struggle because we have to gain connections in other universities with different demographics. However, we have you know, bio, you know, different techniques that we intend to meet that market with. Thank you. We're out of time. Great job, getting you. Hello, everyone. My name is Randall Dubois. We are Microprint, and we are enabling the future of displays. We have developed a patent-pending installation process which will enable the commercialization of micro-LED technology, the biggest thing to happen in the industry since the invention of the iPhone. Micro-LED displays will be able to offer a screen resolution of 10 times better, 100 times brighter, and more than double the energy efficiency of current displays. But what does this mean for you? Think back to the original displays, the original smartphone, the original HD television. They look a lot like this, fuzzy and dark, especially when you compare it to today's displays, crisp, clear, and all around amazing. What I'm telling you here today is there is another step coming, a next step so big that you will look back at the device in your pocket and realize it actually looks a lot like that. But why isn't this already in every display in this room? Well, the manufacturing process is extremely slow because every single display contains millions and millions of little tiny light bulbs, which must illuminate to form the image that you see. If the industry was to make a micro LED screen today, they would use a robotic arm to pick up one micro LED 
and place it on the display every single time. Having to repeat this millions of times, it is extremely slow and inefficient, and it will simply never be good enough. We realize that. Here at Microprint, under the guidance of Nobel Prize laureate Shuji Nakamura and Professor Steve Denbars, we have created a process that got rid of the robotic arm completely, replacing it with a fine nozzle capable of rapidly and precisely dispensing microLEDs onto a display. Zooming in, each one of the particles you are looking at is the width of a single strand of hair. But what you are about to witness is the magic behind our patent-pending process. Our team of developers have come up a way to take scattered microLEDs and precisely align them into rows, ensuring that the electrical connections are properly lined up. If the industry was to make a microLED phone today, they would need over 11 million microLEDs. This process, using a robotic arm, would take them 18 days. We believe, with our technology, we can do it in a mere seven minutes. This is nearly an $11 billion market opportunity. Our process has the potential of going into every single one of the 2.17 billion display devices sold in 2018. Initially, however, we are starting with a smartphone market. The reason being is the benefits of microLED technology will be better seen by the consumer in these devices. Think back to the last time you were at the beach or out golfing. You were probably squinting, covering your phone to see the faintest image on your display. On top of that, a few hours later, your phone dies. Neither of these problems will exist with microLED technology. With a significantly brighter display, you'll be able to see your screen in even the most harshest light. Additionally, double the energy efficiency means your battery on your phone will last twice as long. While this is a huge market control, controlled by the industry behemoths, it is not impossible to enter into with a licensing opportunity paired with critical value-added services. Microprint has both. In fact, one of the top display companies has already reached out inquiring about our patent. We will go into a partnership to develop a contract where we will receive a $5 royalty for every display device they make using our process. However, I can't stress this enough. Our consulting and onboarding services are critical as our team of experts are needed to go into the facilities, implement, and scale up our process. Moving forward, our consulting services will be needed to maintain and continually update our process as we make breakthroughs in our own research development laboratories. To reject potential market growth for this industry, we use historical data based on previous product launches. With an exclusive partnership with Samsung, in year one, we will enter into their high-end phones as they will use our process to make microLED displays. By year two, they will use our displays into their lower-end phones. But here's something really interesting happens. Most in the audience today probably own an iPhone. But did you know the screen that you're looking at is actually made by Samsung? See, what they did is they created the best screen in the market today. They kept to themselves for a few years, and now they've begun selling it to their competitors, opening up an entirely new revenue stream. We believe they will do the same thing 
And by year three, they will begin selling the displays they make using our technology to competitors such as Apple. Years four and years five will experience continued market growth as microLED technology will become the standard in the industry. So how are we gonna get there? Moving back to today, we are in the final 12 months of testing. We believe after that period, we will be ready to begin negotiations with the display manufacturers. This process could take up to three months due to formalities in the industry, but by September of 2020, we will have landed our first partnership and begin scaling our process in their facilities. Six months later, we will begin reliability testing, gearing up for a full product launch in September of 2021. In order to get there, we need $1.25 million of capital to sustain us for the first year, taking us to the critical partnership. The majority of this funding will be used in our research and development laboratories. As we will enter into the CNSI incubator here on campus, hire one full-time engineer and two full-time technicians to accelerate our timeline. By now, you're probably sitting there saying, this is great and all, but how are four students from a small little school on the beach going to pull this off? Well, UCSB is actually the number one graduate program in the nation for both engineering and material science. On top of that, our team is in the most prestigious research group led and guided by Nobel Prize laureate Shuji Nakamura and Professor Steve Denbars. For this reason, the three gentlemen sitting in front of you here today are considered to be among the foremost experts of the micro-LED industry. And the top companies know this. For this reason, they will fight each other not only for the opportunity to license our technology, but for the opportunity to have our consulting services and expertise in their facilities. Thank you very much for your time today. Once again, my name is Randall Dubois. We are Microprint, and we are enabling the future displays. Bella, you want to start us off? Sure. You're using, um, first of all, very impressive, obviously, your backgrounds and what you're doing here. Um, you're using a $5 price model per screen as a royalty fee. What are the benchmarks that you're comparing that to? What's the industry standards? Absolutely. So the industry standards are a 2 to 5% royalty, and that $5 benchmark is a 4.17% royalty on this price of a smartphone display. Okay. And is it, I mean, it's pretty stiff. You're doing $5 as a standard, but isn't it based on volume? We don't believe it would be based on volume, based on the past industry standards. Obviously, um, there's a lot of unique things in this industry that we will find out as we enter into with the right expertise. Okay, and then the final question, just around the Samsung, I mean, you put them up there. Is they just an example, or are you actually discussing this with them? We're not only able to discuss who we're partnering, or who we're talking to about the patent right now, um, but they're just using it as an example. Okay, thank you. Guys, make sure you speak into the mic. I've probably seen 10,000 business plans. I've never seen a Nobel laureate at the top. Uh, he's an impressive guy, uh, and it's an impressive team, right? and, and the opportunity looks, looks massive, uh, which always makes me a little nervous. Uh, this kind of reminds me of graphene uh, business plan uh, pitches. You know, like They can produce graphene in their bathtub. Uh, this looks incredibly revolutionary. The question is, can you really pull it off? You know, and are you guys, you guys are all PhD candidates, right? You, how you've spent a long time. You're ready to drop out your final six months without getting your PhD and pursue this full-time? 
I mean, Ellison dropped out, Gates dropped out, Jobs dropped out. Now, I'm going to get in trouble here because I'm sure if you go produce a billion-dollar company, they'll give you a Ph.D. Uh, or at least an honorary doctorate. Uh, so the one that wrote the patents, uh, Matt Long, is actually about to graduate uh, here within the next six months, which fits into our timeline. Uh, so he would be able to um, start working on the company. And then um, in our financials, uh, the money we requested, that's why we had uh, techs and engineers. So we can guide them and they can actually do the work while uh, we kind of oversee that. Right? Does that answer your question? Is that right, Matt? Is that right, Matt? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I plan to defense in six months, but I don't plan to drop out. But you can do all you can do all this while you're finishing up your PhD. Uh, I should be able to. Or is this your PhD? Is this your is this <laughs> no, your this thesis? Part of part, not not my major uh, portion, but just like from from some of the ideas I. And you've already negotiated the the, the rights to this from the university. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think a lot of companies. Uh, or spin off, they have negotiated with uh, the university before, and then we can do the same. Mike? Um, it makes sense to me the licensing model with the kind of the assembly of, of brains that you've put together. That you know, how can you take that the furthest, and that's by having the, the, the technology and let somebody else run with it. It seems counterintuitive to me that you'd want to do consulting or you'd want to be providing this level of field expertise also, that that would maybe be taking away from those people, same people being able to create new innovations uh, back at home, so to speak. Tell me more about this balance between licensing and, uh, and consulting. So <clears throat> the consulting would deal with in a, a lot of the process integration with their micro-LD chips with our printing process. And so we'd have to work um, with them to every time that they updated their designs or they tried to improve their designs or change anything, that we would have to then integrate that into the printing process. And so it would be kind of a continual relationship. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Steve? Have you been to a production line for current LED factories? No. So is... What are you integrating into? Are you integrating into another company's existing capital equipment line that is implemented at, like a Samsung, or is it Samsung, the original equipment manufacturer? I'm, I'm just trying to understand where you fit into the workflow of the manufacturer process. Uh, so these companies currently, like we said, they, the only process that they know of is the robotic arm that we discussed, but they don't actually, they haven't developed this process line because it's obviously too inefficient. So we're not going to have to make any modifications. What we're bringing to them is the one key piece of the manufacturing line. They're missing. It's like they have a car without an engine, and we're bringing the engine to them. I'm sorry. Just for, for clarity, let's, let's say instead of where the robot is, now there's your spray nozzle, the thing's going by on the floor, and then you've got some process that aligns the, the circuitry once it's put onto the surface, right? Yes, that's, that's correct. So, uh, but, so they, they never have the robot. The robot is currently used in, say, light bulbs, because there's only one LED in a light bulb. Um, so they don't have robots because they know it's too inefficient. So we're bringing, a com we're not, we're adding the part to the manufacturing line that they need. They never have. So, so it's a brand new production line as opposed to modifying the current line. Okay. 
Great job, Michael Pratt. Ah, hello, everyone. Hello, judges. We are interview, and we're revolutionizing the hiring process by integrating video applications of candidates for early personality assessment. Now imagine that you are a casting director for a major blockbuster movie that is set to start filming in less than a month. You rush to cast the lead star based only on their resume. According to his credentials, he should fit the role perfectly. Now the big day's here, the cameras are ready to roll, and you're starting to feel that something is not quite right. And then you finally realize that this chemistry was not what you were looking for. <laughs> okay, let's get serious here. Obviously, I've exaggerated, but this is precisely why Casting directors heavily rely on video auditions at the earliest stages of casting. So why don't hiring managers do the same? By choosing the wrong hire, companies are prone to decreased productivity, disrupted work culture, and higher turnover rates. One out of two hiring managers confess that they are unable to make good hires due to time constraints. With the way hiring is done today, the time is wasted in trying to weed out unfit candidates. By the Bureau of Labor Statistics, this is one of the major reasons it results in productivity losses of up to $220 billion each year. Tony Shea, CEO of Zappos, says that bad hires alone for his company cost him over $100 million in the period of 10 years. This is, what, $10 million per year. Now, let me tell you how interview improves this. First, we enable our candidates to practice their interview skills with our very own database of sample test questions. Second, we provide them with a safe space to share the content with their own community to get feedback. And third, candidates can apply to our partnered companies with the video application supplementing their resume. On the employer's side, hiring managers receive an on-demand video of the candidate answering company's questions. With that, hiring managers have a more efficient process by having better insights into candidates' personality, communication style, and work culture fit at the earliest stages of recruitment. Now with interview, we have a perfect match. Employers identify their ideal talent sooner, and candidates are more prepared to get hired to their desired positions. We differentiate ourselves from competitors by having a platform that considers the needs of both applicants and hiring managers. As you can see from the chart, others on the market focus only one or another part of the equation. Market opportunity, our market opportunity, the market for online recruitment is huge and growing. 
and we are ready to take it. Entryview will initially focus on associate and entry-level positions in the US, which is $4.7 billion segment. Our go-to-market strategy has already started. As of right now, we're beta testing our product with three local partner companies, and actually about to onboard the, th the fourth one, but I'm gonna tell you all about it a little later. Also, we're working with one of our key partners, the Society for Human Resource Management, a nationwide organization that will help us to refine our product. Once our product is ready, we're going to soft launch into Santa Barbara area, grow our list of partner companies, and leverage our relationships with UCSB Career Services. We're going to market our product during on-campus career fairs and target both companies and job seekers. By the beginning of 2020, we're going to fully launch aggressively, aggressively marketing our product using online, social media, and influencers marketing. We're going to attend trade shows and get exposure for ourselves and again, grow our list of partner companies. And finally, by 2021, we're going to enter our, gro our, our exponential growth phase. Now, the way Interview makes money is pretty simple. Our business-to-business -business revenue model consists of a plan where we charge employers $250 per job posting per month. This price remains competitive with other job posting websites on the market. Now, according to our go-to-market strategy, by the end of first year, we're planning to partner with 60 companies with 500 positions posted. Fast forward to our fifth year, we're going to expand to 3,000 companies with 40,000 positions posted. This gives us a projected revenue of $20 million by the end of 2024. In order to achieve our goals, we will need initial investment in an amount of $600,000, and these funds are going to be allocated towards marketing, developer operations, and operating expenses. Now, let me tell you about us. Who is Interview? Our team is multicultural, highly skilled unit that continues to challenge old thought and looks to innovate. We know how to handle adversity and keep pushing through. Within the span of one month, this team acquired three key partner companies. Affolio, Product Plan, and Inogen. And we're in the process of, acqui of acquiring the fourth one, Appeal Sciences. <laughs> As of right now, we already have our first user experience feedback from Avfolio. Our candidates are moving to the next stage because of interview. The progress we've made with the team within four months, four months since we started, is a testament of who we are as interview. A dedicated and passionate team that is determined to change how innovative companies hire. Help us revolutionize your hiring process. Thank you.
Excellent presentation. Do you need the, do you have? Kevin, you want to start us? Sure. So y you start off with, it's kind of a market where people can learn how to interview really well. But employers aren't looking for people that interview really well. I mean, that's part of the problem, right, is that people will interview well, you hire them, and you find out something that just, it's not always the best indicator. So I was struggling to find it, figure out, which, by the way, I think, you know, helping people to interview well, I think that's very necessary. Um, yeah, that's great. That, that, like, that, that is a product in, in, in and of itself. But I, I struggle with finding out why those, those two are connected. So uh, we believe that uh, companies currently need more insight because they're wasting a lot of time interviewing the wrong candidates. We are just providing this video tool for the candidates to be able to uh, show their personality better. And the whole point of this practice tool is for the people who already have the talent but they don't know how to present themselves. And this is something that we have gained through our market validation that even the people who were really confident about what they are doing and like they thought they were going to kill the videos, but they ended up being stressed and not doing good. Okay. So I, I can see this as a, as a, as a good pre-screening tool. And I think maybe that's m more what you're really positioned as a pre-screening tool. So you get the right most qualified candidates in the, in the, in the door. Not necessarily it helps to pick the absolute best candidate. Exactly. So we aren't canceling out any face-to-face -face interviews. It's just a streamlined process so hiring managers can get to those candidates and then bring them in as soon as possible once they identify the best talent for them and their culture fit. Okay. I would think there'd be a lot of concern about a product like this reinforcing biases with introducing, you know, the way people look, the way they talk, different things into the hiring process. Um, tell me what the, the uh, hiring managers that you've talked to thought about whether this is more inclusive because it lets more people present themselves or whether it's less inclusive because it gives people more opportunity to uh, kind of display biases on the hiring side. Uh, great question. So um, we have actually consulted with uh, employment and labor lawyers as well as, as well as we've done market validation with over uh, 60 recruiters. And so we are going to implement several solutions to uh, mitigate that problem. First of all, next to each video application, there's going to be a scoreboard that recruiters are going to use to rate candidates based on criteria that are non-discriminatory. So this is kind of taking care of the legal liability aspect of the problem. Additionally, keep in mind that at the resume stage of screening, uh, recruiters do not have access to the video application. So the video application is the second phase of screening. Moreover, um, we are going to give hire, uh, human resource departments the tool to monitor their hiring patterns, and if they see patterns of discrimination, they can curb it. We take this issue very seriously, and we have solutions. See. Um, so just from, uh, I, it's awesome you have pilots now and I like the idea. So I'm just wondering why is the only barrier to scaling money? 
I mean, have you figured – so you're going to raise capital and you're getting to five – was it 5,000, 3,000 companies in five years? But there are 20 – there are 5 million businesses with under 500 employees in the U.S., so that's very small market penetration. Is, it, is capital the limiting factor for expansion? Um, so it's a – money is very – it's one of the crucial aspects we need to scale because we're going to invest a lot of that into marketing, um, which is pretty typical of a SaaS company like ourselves. Um, and then just want to be clear that we're not necessarily limiting ourselves to just large companies, um, but just companies overall. I guess, I guess the point of my question, though, is if this becomes a feature set in another, I don't know, ZipRecruiter or LinkedIn or something, what stops – what, what barriers to them for – you know, it seems like a market grab is the key issue, uh, right? That's another great question. So we realize that if we prove the concept right, competitors will try to – may try to copy us. Uh, that's why we understand that we have to market aggressively, um, go big, establish a brand, and uh, get great customer experience to maintain that loyalty. Uh, additionally, keep in mind that we have a first mover advantage, and this team, with only four months in, having a fully functional platform and three companies on board it, has shown that we are able to move very fast. Okay. Thank you. So I think you have solved a problem. I know in my own interview practices, I don't go to an in-person interview off of a resume. I go to a Zoom call which is kind of similar, so this is kind of an interim step, so I can visually kind of connect with the person, see their body language, their personality. But I'm not sure, based on what you've shared, what really would prevent just anybody just adding video to their current existing uh, services and or I've gotten resumes in the not-too-distant past. There's just a link on it where I can see a video of an individual because they know that video is so incredibly powerful. So regarding the last aspect of uh, candidates sharing the link to their video, keep in mind that via our platform, candidates are answering questions pre-selected by the company. And it is true that uh, LinkedIn, Indeed, Monster, they are not implementing video applications as of yet. Um, there are software in the industry, that, like HireVue, that are doing that. Uh, the way we differentiate ourselves from HireVue, for example, is because we integrate job application platform with video application software so you do not have to go to a company purchase the software for a yearly plan separately and then go propose job as ours is a more integrated process giving for a more streamlined and efficient uh, experience and the hiring manager has more control of the content of the thank you okay we're out of time good work interview hi we're authenticate and we have a smartphone-based solution to solve all companies' major security problems. But before I tell you how that works, let me tell you a tale of two industries. These two industries have the same exact problem. They want to protect corporate assets. 
They're so big that every single company on Earth has an entire department dedicated to each. Yet, they have never met. Let's first look at the digital industry. We know this is digital authentication, and you probably know it as the password. And if you think that passwords annoy you, try being an IT administrator. The problem is that hackers have gotten so good at stealing and cracking passwords that the current password-based solutions are completely ineffective. Let me show you an example. So a phishing attack is when somebody sends a specially crafted email that looks exactly like one you would have gotten from work. But when you click the link in the email, you're redirected to an attacker-owned website. Can you tell the difference between these two websites? I sure can't. And neither could the 40 people in this room that we sent a phishing email last night. When they went to this website, they were then prompted to enter their UCSB net ID because there was important information about the finals tonight. But when they were typing in their password, instead of getting to the important information, they found this landing page that informed them that had it not been for us protecting them, they would have had their credentials stolen. In fact, 76% of companies last year reported being victims of phishing attacks. And phishing attacks alone cost the world economy $5 billion between 2013 and 2016. So now that we've seen the problem of phishing, let's see what's going on on the physical side. We all know these as door locks with keys, right? We're protecting the common problem of burglary. We don't want people to steal our stuff. We paid a lot of money for it. And the industry has pretty much standardized this. We have these card readers. We take our IDs out. We touch them to the reader, and they make that wonderful boop, and the door unlocks. However, these have similar security problems. They can be stolen or copied. In fact, it only took me five seconds to copy my UCSB ID. So let's say we're a company, and we don't want this to happen to us. What is the state of the art right now? In the digital world, we have two-factor authentication, things that text you, things that you carry in your pocket. And on the physical side, we pretty much know it. It's the IDs that we have, and it's the readers that are on our doors. The problem is that in both these industries, they suffer from the same four problems. These solutions are annoying. You get a text on your phone, and you have to copy this number into some text field. You have to carry another thing in your pocket. There's a new ID, a new thing on your keychain. They're inflexible. If UCSB wants to fix the problem of cloning their IDs, every single person needs a new ID. And they're expensive. In our interviews, we found out that the readers on campus cost $7,000 per door. And companies have been making products in both of these industries independently for a long time. But no one has actually tried to solve the overarching big problem until today. How many people in the audience have a smartphone on them right now? Exactly. So here at Authenticate, we want to use that smartphone to protect your employer's workforce, or protect your employer's assets. We call this single device authentication. And the idea is simple. Your smartphone probably knows you better than your mom does. You take it everywhere with you. You talk to it every day. So if you can convince your smartphone that you're you, we want your smartphone to then convince the rest of the world, both physically and digitally. We've actually been working on this technology for the past 10 years, and we can talk to anything that your smartphone can talk to. So NFC, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, USB. We use secure hardware on the smartphone to make sure that even if it's stolen, no one can ever steal the credentials off of it. And we have three simple security interactions. So an administrator at a company can make their security flexible so that users only have to do three things. The first we call magic mode. In this mode, doors will magically unlock as you approach them. Computers will unlock when you sit down, 
and your websites will just log in when you browse to them. If you want a little bit more security, we have a human in the loop option where the users will then have to take their phone out and hit a button, say to unlock the door to a special lab or log into a website. And then finally, if there's something high security, a lab that you want to know the personnel that are going into it, or you're downloading a W-2 form for work, you can do identification, where they'll pull their phone out, tap a fingerprint, or type in a pin. This technology is actually patented in January. I developed it when I was a member of the technical staff at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. And um, we have the first right of refusal as the inventor, and we plan on licensing it this summer. So now that you know the technology, I want to tell you why I know it will be a great company. We've done 50 interviews with local companies. We've done a user study with over 20 users. We had done extensive market research. We've even deployed a prototype for the past year here on UCSB where we use this to unlock three doors in the computer science building. So the value proposition that we're bringing to the market, first, that phishing attack I told you about earlier, we can completely eliminate that, either by wiping out passwords entirely or by using your phone as a seamless second factor. The password alone would no longer be enough. We're also offering smart readers to companies. So these are flexible. They can take software updates. They can talk to any smartphone on the market, and they're backward compatible with any existing infrastructure that companies have already invested in. We also offer cloud-based management software. So this means that when companies use our product, they just need to sign on to a website, select which users should have access to which resources, and we take care of the rest. And finally, for the first time ever, we can offer a comprehensive logging solution. Traditionally, these have been separate industries, but now companies can see what their employees are doing, both in the physical and digital worlds, in one comprehensive log. So how big are these markets? They're huge, actually. Both of them independently are $8 billion, and this is just the two-factor market. And they're growing at really high rates. We think this is a great time for us to go ahead and get into the market and shake things up a bit. And the way that we want to enter that market is starting with small to medium-sized businesses and just marketing our smart readers. The reason for this is twofold. One, we want to literally get our foot in the door. We find that once companies invest in their reader technology, they tend to stick with them. And small to medium-sized companies tend to be looking for new ways to improve things, cut costs, and when they're taking on new office space, they may not even have readers installed yet altogether. So our revenue model, we want to do a recurring revenue stream cut down some of the upfront costs for companies, and take about $1 to $3 a month per user. Next year, we hope to roll out our two-factor authentication to offer a more small to medium-sized business package, taking about $10 a user. And ultimately, we want to enter the enterprise market where we can integrate with single sign-on, email, everything you're used to in large enterprises. And our income stream, the first year, we're just going to be in the red developing our smart readers with one to two beta companies in town. And year two, we're really going to push sales hard. We want to hire a large sales team, try and get this product on the market, and we hope to be profitable by year three. In fact, we already have two beta, two beta partners uh, locked down. So Peel Sciences and CIO Solutions have both agreed to work with us and let us try our door technology on their offices. So the team that's going to make this all happen is led by me with 10 years of research experience. Rita is our head of operations to make sure we actually get everything done. Jake is our product manager, making sure that we're making something people want to buy. Evan's our hardware engineer that's going to build our smart readers. And these two industries that have yet to meet are now married together, saving companies money and time and giving them more security with less burden. Thank you very much.
I'm excited. If you want to see the phishing attack that we sent out, you can browse to that link to see what everybody saw last night. Right. So I know that IT is probably used to paying subscriptions for a SaaS solution to solve all their problems, but it would seem to me if, if you're bringing these two worlds together, I'm assuming the second world is facilities. And is facilities ready? Do they budget properly? Do they have this idea of moving from buying something to essentially renting something or paying a subscription? Or is that a major hurdle that you'll have to clear? Um, thank you. That's a good question. So from our market validation, we talked to companies and we realized that, as we said, they all have different departments. They get their physical, uh, uh, physical access control different and their uh, digital access control in a very, at a very different uh, company. So uh, we realized that the ideal for us would be to charge for the hardware, which is going to be the door reader. Um, we've been asking how much they paid for that. UCSB, they pay here $7,000 per door reader, and the cheapest we got was uh, $200, $200. So we're thinking to, change, uh, to charge a couple hundred dollars per door reader, and uh, we're going to be using the tiered subscription model. Uh, following one of the most successful pricing, mod uh, pricing models that our competitors use. So um, uh, we're, we're going to be charging for the physical door and uh, like a couple, couple dollars per user per month for, for, for employees to use that. So which of the two departments do you think will sign the contract to work with you guys? Um, so we'll be, we'll be, for now we've been talking to, uh, to the IT managers the, and the, the, the access control people in the companies and uh, they're both really excited about the product. So we'll be, we'll be signing the contract with the company uh, like as a one entity in, instead of two different entities. Does that answer your question? Well, just usually there becomes a fight. Both, both departments may want it, but it gets a fight over which one's going to pay for it. Or whose budget it comes out of? So I just that that was more the question is, which which budget does this come out of? Yeah. So to answer your question, you're right. Facilities are very used to paying these large upfront costs. So that's why we just want to focus on the door readers first. So in year one, we only want to talk to facilities managers to try to solve that problem. The idea being that then when they go like two factor, when they want two factor, they literally just have to click a button on our website, and their whole company will now have two factor with the same solution. So that's hopefully our channel to get the IT department tied into the same contract. Okay. Thank you. Steve? Um, first of all, I, I would have loved to have that in any of my last three jobs. So, you know, I, I, I like the idea of being able to do both. I, I think to the point of um, that there are two different buyers here that you're trying to bring together. I know that's difficult. It's going to be a direct sales model. So... More than a question, it's more about advice. You're projecting, trying to get to profit, whatever. This is going to be an enterprise sales model. It's going to be expensive. I think you're way underpriced, personally, for what the value you're delivering. And the cost of acquisition of customers is going to be higher than you think. But I also think that this kind of sale, you can go raise a lot of money, and they're not going to worry about making a profit. It's going to be a reach for grabbing market share. That's my thought. And so... I think with the core technology and the value add you have, I can see a lot of value there, but I really would like to think through how you acquire customers and not worry about profit, really raise the finance to go grab market share before somebody follows you in the door. Not literally. <laughs> <laughs>
so uh, like the other judges, you know, I very much see your two target markets here. One, obviously, the physical door, and then the computer one. The computer one is the one that hasn't been you know, dealt with all that much and really just being able to have a phone or something that will authenticate you as you walk up to the computer or as you interact with, with the computer. You're seeing that as a phase two, if I understand correctly? Okay, great. So in the physical one, Kissy seems to be the one that right now is kind of, you know, leading the way and, you know, I have it on a couple of the places I go to. I just do it and it unlocks it. How do you guys compete against that since you're going after that in phase one? So obviously there's a lot of physical access control solutions with smartphone um, products, but we think that we obviously want to do both in one solution. And I don't think that if like a company working on physical access control wanted to jump into digital two-factor, that'd be perceived as a risk um, to do it with the same product. The big guys are slow and rigid, but we can be really nimble and find out what IT and facility managers like really need in one unified system. So I think that's our startup advantage. Okay. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. Uh, great presentation. Uh, the value proposition was is there. Uh, a couple things, and I love that the fact that you are you are combining the two because uh, two really should be combined. Uh, I know there's a company. I'm trying to get the name of the company because we looked at it. Uh, it was a company down in LA doing the the physical security uh, with the with the phone, uh, and they're doing quite well. So I wasn't sure if you knew about this company. The other one is, you know, you talk about your patent. I'm, I'm very leery of patents, um, very leery, especially process patents, software patents. They, they're, they're not really defensible. So to, I think, Steve's point, this is, you know, forget about making money. You don't make, you don't make money for the first 10 years in technology companies. You, you spend a lot and you go after the land grab. So I def definitely rethink that. But your patent covers what? Yes, I'm also not a pro in patents. My co-inventor was a patent lawyer for the best law firm in Boston, so I trusted him a little bit. But the patent actually covers everything that was on that slide, our software architecture, the three different um, ways to authenticate, and the way that we use the, the security features on the phone to make sure that we're, I would never say unhackable, but you know, as secure as possible. And then how, do you, how, are you, how are you planning on doing the digital security? Is that going to be some type of API? that applications would... would yeah, uh, um, so the FIDO Alliance has already been pushing this, so things like YubiKey and um, any other two-factor solutions that Google uses, that's all a standardized API that we can easily adapt our, our product for. Great job, Authenticate. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for being here tonight to hear about the amazing teams in the New Venture Competition. We are so happy to be closing out tonight. My name is Jasmine, and I'm here with my co-founders, Miles, Natalie, Diana, Kelsey, and Julia, and we are Selva. It might surprise you to learn that there are 482 billion yards of textile surplus created every year worldwide. That equates to one garbage truck of fabric per second. Some of this is sent to landfill or incinerated, and the rest, known as dead stock, is sold by third-party intermediaries. The fashion industry is in the top five most polluting sectors in the world, 
And this is in part due to the copious amounts of waste created through the current supply chain. But this isn't just an environmental issue. There are over $100 billion in value lost every year in the U.S. alone due to the mismanagement of textile resources. And the fashion industry simply will not be able to keep up with the demands for production given the decreased yields predicted due to climate change. Unless it becomes more efficient. And that's where we come in. Selva is an online platform to broker the sale of dead stock fabric from textile manufacturers to fashion designers in the United States. By hosting Deadstock online, we can increase the awareness that it exists and create a direct pipeline that prevents waste. In the current market, jobbers, who are the third-party intermediaries that sell Deadstock, monopolize this industry. They give mills pennies on the dollar for their fabric and then turn around to designers and inflate the price on average 2,000%. I know, it sounds like a great business proposition, right? We plan to use that huge profit margin to put money back into the hands of the mills, give designers more optionality, and take 25% off the top. Designers will find Selva an invaluable resource because we will make their fabric sourcing process more cost-effective, easier, and efficient. The small to medium-sized designers that we are targeting do not meet the minimum order quantity requirements to source directly from mills and they have to physically adventure through fashion districts or have a personal connection to find jobbers. And by hosting a variety of deadstock fabrics in one convenient online platform, we will allow designers to put design first instead of sourcing. And we promise trust and transparency throughout the entire process of working with us, which is a novel concept in the current market landscape. Mills will also find Selva to be an integral resource because currently they are losing money on their dead stock. Selva offers a turnkey solution that takes full responsibility for cataloging fabric in mill warehouses, hosting it on our platform, and sending swatches to designers. We will also work within mill inventory cycles so that there will be no disruption to their current state of operations. Jobbers are currently our largest competitors but they often work independently with no websites or easily accessible contact information. Fashion designers are literally forced to wander down 8th Street in LA and knock on doors to find what they're looking for. And the only other company that we've identified as a competitor is called Queen of Raw, a deadstock fabric reseller that works out of New York City. This company sources textiles from Southeast Asia, does not have online purchasing capability, and does not send swatches to designers. And what differentiates us from both of these groups is that we will not be warehousing fabric. We will be moving the current archaic system online and modernizing the way that dead stock is sold. Our platform feature set is specifically tailored to inspire designers and capture them at their ideation stage with personalized logins, mood boards, design tools, and tracked resource savings. And we will send free swatches of all the fabric that we have on our platform. And for the other side of our supply chain, we'll also have a portal for mills to apply to host on our platform as well. We've assessed our market opportunity looking at the 7 billion yards of dead stock fabric created every year in the United States. And we estimate that 20% of that market will be accessible to us. With our 25% brokerage fee, that gives us a total market value of over 3 billion. Selva will only be focusing on high-end or novelty fabrics in the beginning, such as silks, wools, denim, and organics, 
and that gives us a serviceable market value of $1 billion. We will launch in California, which accounts for 37% of the U.S. textile manufacturing market, and this is valued at $375 million. To be able to capture this market opportunity, we'll be using a brokerage fee. In the current system, jobbers give mills pennies on the dollar and then inflate the price to designers. And we plan to disrupt the current supply chain and give mills 10 times what they're currently making while giving designers more optionality. To walk you through what this looks like, in the current system, jobbers will offer mills, say, a dollar per yard for, 20, or for 100 yards of fabric and then give designers a price of $20 per yard. That's a 95% gross margin that jobbers pocket. What Selva plans to do for the exact same transaction is to give mills a fair price for their fabrics to incentivize them to hold inventory for us. And even though we know the demand on the design side is still at $20 per yard, even if we offered designers a price of $15 per yard, we could take our 25% brokerage fee and give mills 11 times more than what they're currently making. So I know a 25% brokerage fee might sound insanely high, but when you look at the numbers, it might not even be enough. And even with this estimate, everyone still wins. Jobbers currently take 90% of the money flowing through the supply chain, and Selva has the opportunity to disperse money more equitably while still making a huge profit. And this is evidenced by our revenue projections. This graph was created by estimating the amount of designers we can reasonably capture in our first five years, paired with the amount of mills we would need to meet that estimated demand. With our 25% brokerage fee, that gives us a first-year revenue estimate of $530,000. And as we continue to grow and expand to New York and the entire United States, we have a five-year revenue estimate of over $10 million. Our go-to-market strategy is going to be to focus on what fabrics designers are looking for in tandem with sourcing the mills that make those types of fabrics. This will ensure that we have demand in place by the time we're cataloging inventory for our platform. We will also begin a social media marketing push to reach a wider audience and attend trade shows to meet contacts in the industry. We've already begun reaching out to design schools and costume designers to have our platform integrated into their um, inventories as well. Selva is lucky to be made up of a highly interdisciplinary team with skills in environmental science, fashion, brokerage sales, accounting, and management. And we've already been able to accomplish so much in a short amount of time. We've already solidified our first partnership with our first mill located in Santa Maria, California. And we have a wait list of 12 designers excited to be the first adopters of our platform when we launch. We've already attended our first trade show and toured the LA Fashion District. And our next steps are to build our platform and begin our marketing initiatives. We plan to launch early next year and estimate in our first two years needing $400,000 to begin, $150,000 to build our platform, and $250,000 for travel, marketing, and other operational costs. 100% of our team is committed to launching this business, and we are so excited to begin. We are Selva, helping designers create with what already exists. Thank you. Do you need the clicker? Keep it. Yep. Excellent job.
wonderful presentation. Val, you want to start us off? Yeah, ec- excellent presentation. Um, so what is the sales strategy? Are you going to actually have people go to the mills and kind of do the pitch? What are you going to do? Because obviously the number of mills that you have is going to be a big factor if the designers really feel that you've got the inventory that they can pull from. Right. So from the mills perspective, right now in the current industry, they are liable to hold on to their product through their inventory cycle. And that cost is non-trivial. In fact, it accounts for a huge amount of money. So because of the value that we provide by being able to move that excess throughout that entire cycle, we find it to be a very enticing value proposition. In fact, through word of mouth, the mill that we acquired reached out to us proactively because they were so interested in being able to move that surplus inventory. So we believe that the most effective approach is in a relationship-driven industry to really cherish the relationships we make early on with our early adopters and use that to essentially go to market through the mills. So the sales strategy is direct sales calls? Correct. Okay. And then just one add-on to that one. What do you think the average size of the order is? So the way that we broke it down is into three different customer demographics. Individuals who be purchasing about 100 yards per year. Then small accounts, which are 5,000 yards per year, and medium accounts, which are 10,000 yards per year. So it varies depending on the designer, but the average amongst that is closer to 5,000. Okay. Is that, I'm trying to understand the dollars that. So average sales size is how much per year? The average sales size, assuming that, say it's about 5,000 and they order five times per year, which came up in market research, is about $10,000. Okay. Thank you. This is a complicated one. I think you've, you've identified a highly inefficient market, um, though you're kind of comparing apples and oranges. The jobbers are not selling 100% of the fabric, right? They're, they're, they're taking a bunch of crud, um, waste, and they're saying, look, we'll give you a buck for it. You don't have to worry about it. It's done. You don't have to worry about anything else. And they take it and they try to sell it. Sometimes they get 20 bucks. Sometimes they get five bucks. Sometimes they get zero. It probably goes to the garbage. Uh, so I'm curious if you know, one, how many jobbers are there in in California? We do not know exactly how many drivers there are in California. Do but you know it what there's? A massive amount. Do you know how many, what their sell through is? What their, I'm sorry. Their sell through. Like, what, what, of the inventory they buy, what percent do they actually sell? Like, what's their effective per yard? Because they're not making 95%. So in a situation that they're purchasing, for example, a truckload of fabric, a lot of times they're donating about 80% of it, but that's because they're going in and buying it wholesale. They're not actually looking at the fabric and curating it in the way that we would be. Um, What they're doing is just purchasing it in its entirety, and then the rest they would be donating generally to fashion schools and then selling what they want. So it also depends on who their customers are at the moment. We got a lot of varied answers from the jobbers when we were doing our market validation interviews. I think eventually you're going to have to. I don't. Do the text? Do the mills really want to get into holding that inventory and shipping it and all the logistics involved with that, or do they? Would they rather just give it to you on consignment, or you say, "Look, we'll pay you two bucks," and you take the risk? So right now the mills are holding the inventory. So they, on average, clear house twice a year. And within that cycle, they're holding on to this excess inventory for six months. So being able to work within that cycle to move the inventory, essentially we're putting it on their terms without asking them to do anything beyond what they do normally. But you're not going to sell 100% of it, so they're still going to have the That's true. The crud. So the, the pie is so big in this market. 
And when you're thinking about competitors, the drivers are our biggest direct competitor, right? So being able to work within the inventory cycle of these mills and sell everything that we can, there's going to be some left over for the jobbers who are still going to be able to run their current business model. Okay. Right. I would think, though, that once, if you've got first crack at it, the stuff that's left for the jobbers is the, the stuff that you thought would be donated. It, it seems like it would, you're, you're jumping in the middle and expecting something valuable to be still there when you're really selling the valuable, whatever it is, 5 or 10 or 20 percent. Um, and it seems as though, again, that the, the, the mills want to get rid of stuff. And one of the things is they, they know that some of this stuff can't be sold, and so they're prob they want to pass that problem along at the, the lowest cost possible. Um, have you considered other approaches, for example, taking inventory and being able to essentially become a much better jobber and say that, that, that the problem is not that the, the mills, um, with the mills, it's with the jobbers having not kind of gotten to the current level? and say you're going to take the product and you're going to do what they do but do it much better? So take on inventory is something that we thought a lot about, but it's also the largest cost of our competitors. So we plan to go into the high-end and novelty market, but there are still very valuable things to be sold that the mills would hold on to, for example, cotton textiles and things of that sort of nature. So we plan to not take inventory and work within those cycles because we believe that there's a huge opportunity to not take on those costs. And the idea is that the, the jobbers take it after the cycle, and so one of your innovations is jumping in and taking on the inventory. In a sense, it's distressed, but you get to it earlier? Right. So the jobbers essentially are coming at the end of the cycle, buying up the lot, taking absolutely everything for pennies on the dollar, knowing that they're able to mark up up to 2,000% what they can sell, and then donating the rest. So I just, just for, I'm just trying to process some information. So six, every six months, the mill dumps their inventory, what you're saying. So during that, somewhere between one and six months, they're collecting all the excess fabric. They're holding it. You guys would be cataloging it, and a, and a designer would then ask for a swatch because they saw it online, but they don't know. The mill is fulfilling the order of delivering the swatch. Is that a resource they already currently do on regular orders? So they typically work with big brands, and there's been a negotiation process in that fabric prior. So in terms of sending the swatches, especially early on, that's something we're going to be doing ourselves. But we see that as an opportunity to continue to cultivate the relationship with our suppliers. But how, how do you do it if you don't have the inventory? So swatches are very, very small. So we could take, for example, one yard of what we catalog when we go to the mill itself, and use that as our swatches for designers. Okay. So, it, but you're trying, so I get it, it's a cottage industry and you're trying to bring it all together and bring value out. I don't know why you'd lower the price, by the way. If you're bringing so, more value, lowering the price. Can I make a point of clarification yeah. on that? So, really what we were trying to say is that even if we discount it, even if we give the mills significantly more, there's still a lot of profit to be had. It was more of an illustrative point than okay. our actual strategy. So one last just quick question. Do you think it's going to be harder to acquire designers or mills? Because it's a marketplace. You have to get both. So which do you think is more complicated? I think that the pain point of the mills is so salient from a cost perspective that it's going to be more difficult to acquire designers. Okay. We're out of time. 
Great job, Selva. All right, let's get started. Can we have more outside? All right, we're going to get started here. So the first matter of business is that apparently last night I was hacked. And apparently my slides had a few errors in them, and I believe it was from the hack. Chad, where's Chad? Is that possible, Chad, that my PowerPoint was corrupted by your act of hacking? Okay. That was a little embarrassing, but I promise when I loaded it today, all pictures were good, and you weren't in anything except what you were supposed to be in, and all the pictures of you were perfect. So, thank you for um, indulging that little slip-up. The second thing, guys, I'd like to just say, you all were magnificent today in your presentations. And on top of that, I want to just give a quick shout-out to the team that helped prepare you, and that's Jason Spivak. Taylor Ting. Is Taylor still here? Great. Craig Cummings. Michael Holland. and Kelly Broadback, who decided to go to Maui instead of to this competition. Okay. Um, I also want to give the annual speech uh, to you all, which is to say that do not, as I started to say at the New Venture Fair, do not let the results of this voting determine your desire to go forward or not. This is a somewhat arbitrary and a point of time, given how much work you've done in a certain area, We can talk more and give you feedback. We've got a whole group of mentors to to help you continue on. The fact that you've made it this far should not dissuade you from continuing on regardless of this voting. So please take that to heart. I know it's hard, but please take that to heart. For, For those of you that may have another calling, a different calling, like student loans and the need to get work, and you're not going to pursue a startup because it's all encompassing and hard, Take these great skills you've learned from all the great mentors that provided them to you and go make impact and be entrepreneurial in a, in a fast-growing tech company and kill it there. And that's part of our success is your success. So um, do that and, and take, take everything you've learned. Okay. Now, with that, I'm going to pass the podium to Sarah Hilliard to do the honors of announcing tonight's winners. Um, Thanks, Sarah. Hi, guys. I'm usually not in front of the podium here. Oh, yes. That's what I was. That's why I have it already. So, uh, uh, actually, first, if it's possible, can I ask any uh, sponsor representative um, to come on up and line up over here, and I will be calling you guys up to take a picture with the winners. So, if you're here from any of our sponsors. Straddling, SoCal IP, Procore, CNM, any of our sponsors, please come on up. Entrada, we got a lot, yeah, lots of them. Please come on up and we're going to ask you to take a photo. So, first, what's really awesome, um, I'll take this. So, every participant is going to walk away with a beautiful Sonos One speaker today. So, thank you, Sonos. That's part of their participation. So make sure you grab one from 
Karina. Okay, so we're going to start off by um, starting with our three honorable mentions. Okay, so representing uh, Procore and CNM, if you guys uh, wouldn't mind coming on up. Procore and CNM. Anybody? Procore. No, CNM? All right, well, I guess not, but our first honorable mention. Okay. okay, our first honorable mention today is the Herd Co. So come on up and stand on top of the blue X, and we're going to take a quick photo. Nice job, Herdco. <laughs> okay, our second honorable mention today, represented by uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan, and Entrada. Anybody here from those two sponsors? Please come on up to the stage. And our second honorable mention today is Microprint. And our last honorable mention for the day, represented by Yardi and Maps.com. We have anybody here from Yardi or Maps.com? All right. <laughs> All right. So our last honorable mention is interview. Okay, so third place, uh, representatives of MRL Dow. Got anybody MRL Dow here today? MRL Dow? Nope. Okay, well, our third place is Guinea Gig. All right, so it only leaves two left. 
but we'll announce our second place first. Uh, CNSI is, who is it, tall or, oh yeah, oh yes, hello, come on up. <laughs> All right guys, second place this year is Selva. Wait, we have a mistake. Those results were hacked. So, of course, congratulations. Uh, do we have straddling? Someone from straddling here? Come on up. Congratulations, Authenticate. First place. We have two awards left. This year we have one recipient of the Impact Award and two recipients of the People's Choice Award. Um, so if anyone from SoCal IP or Smart Office want to come on up, represent, come on up. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, so our Impact Award today is going to go to Microprint. Come on up, guys. Okay, I'm going to announce both of these at the same time. So first, can I pay Junction and Deloitte? And who are my other ones? Oh, yeah, pay Junction and Deloitte. <laughs> uh, so we have two people's choice this year. Our first people's choice is the Herd Co. <laughs> and our second people's choice is Authenticate. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.